Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. The cybersecurity landscape is full of single solution providers, making it easy for unexpected cyber threats to sneak through the cracks. That's why Fortra is creating a stronger, simpler strategy for protection, one that increases your security maturity while decreasing the operational burden that comes with it. This is all possible thanks to Fortra's best-in-class portfolio and deep bench of expert problem solvers. Fortra's integrated, scalable solutions help customers face their toughest challenges with confidence. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Fortra. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. That's how both our guests uh, today got onto the show, I believe, is uh, starting with that form. All right, for our second interview today, Dan Freckling joins us today to talk about why data privacy is getting overhauled in 2023. Dan is the CEO of Boltiv, which makes a product that helps publishers and ad exchanges uh, address invasive and potentially malicious ads. I hope I'm characterizing that correctly. Yeah, that's right, Adrian. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> Dan's been uh, leading B2B SaaS businesses since before the dot-com bubble and was a VP at stamps.com at one point. I found that an interesting uh, tidbit there. Welcome to the show, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. And thanks for uh, giving me a trip down memory lane just now. Yeah, <laughs> that, that one jumped out at me. Uh, stamps.com. There's got to be there's got to be a story there from like dot com startups to to the U.S. Post Office. It's the U.S. Post Office, right? Yeah. It, it, at one point, stamps dot com was a punchline, um, and then it became wildly successful after I had left. But um, the the thing that changed actually for the company was um, was nine eleven and the anthrax in the mail. And once there was a rebranding of many companies to national security companies, Stamps got swept up in that. Stamps.com did because they were able to trace mail. And it was a very effective defense against more pathogens, but through the mail system using the uh, unique tracking that was on the Stamps.com printable postage. Very cool. I did not know that at all. That's very interesting. Uh, So... Talking about uh, privacy today, um, I guess to get us started, you know what? What uh, we just talked about, you had a role at, at Stamps.com. So, so how do you get to privacy? How how do how do you uh, get over to the? Because you you haven't always been in the security world, correct? Yeah, I, I haven't been. Um, I um, it was I sold my last company called G Two uh, to Verisk, and that was. It, kind of adjacent to cybersecurity, that was around, about bad actors and bad content, um, illegal e-commerce. And, but it was really a, a personal situation. I, I didn't intend to become a privacy practitioner. I don't have a legal background, but I had an incident that happened to me that really compelled me to do something about privacy. And, and what happened was 
uh, one day my wife had back pain. And so we searched to figure out what the causes might be. And after no improvement, we went in for an MRI and we got a very strange diagnosis that it was possible cancer. And that's about the last thing you would have expected. Uh, we certainly didn't expect it. And we did more and more tests and it was confirmed it was non-small cell lung cancer, but it was also very advanced, unfortunately, at stage four having spread throughout her body. So I did tons of research, like many people do when you go through the cancer journey and visited lots of treatment sites, looked for lots of, uh, of different um, variations of cancer that it might be. And, but I, while I was researching the diagnosis, I was being profiled online not to my knowledge, based on my browse history. And I started seeing all these shady cancer treatments coming through the internet. And some were new treatments, some were dramatic. Um, but it was really how I learned, having been a marketer, such as my time at stamps.com, I learned the other side and how intrusive and predatory targeted marketing can really be. So um, having gone through that experience, and one of life's ironies, the uh, founding CEO of of Voltiv um, was also going through that same journey with his wife. And uh, my wife sadly passed away, but he, um, his Val was still, uh, was still with us. And so he did a very noble thing and he took time to be a caregiver. And that allowed me uh, to come into the company. He recruited me in uh, to be CEO and we transitioned at that point. And it's been a real good fit for me because we really are a mission-based business and, and privacy is more than just um, uh, another offshoot of cybersecurity. For many of us, it's, it's a very personal mission um, about um, data rights for people and taking back some of those rights that were lost. Yeah, and it's it's in security, I think you do, at, well, I'm biased, right? I've been in security my, my whole career, but you do find a lot of um, mission-oriented folks, you know, where it's more than just a job. You know, not necessarily with a with a a story like yours, but um, you know, generally it's touched them in some way personally. You know, where where they just um, you know they dove in, they did a bunch of research, and before you know it, you know, it ends up where where you live. You know, because you want to make things better, right? Yeah, that's really it. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's kind of. Um, so since you mentioned Boltiv, let, let's talk a little bit about what Boltiv does, because this is not really my area either. There, there are a lot of um, uh, categories that are kind of adjacent to security, uh, like, like anti-fraud, um, dealing with bots and things like that. You know, but uh, to me, kind of the ad tech industry and, and how a lot of marketing works behind the scenes, how, you know, I, I've. I think we've all seen the effects of searching for something online and all of a sudden getting targeted ads related to your to your browsing habits. And in fact, we, we even have a story uh, we're going to cover in the news segment today about how how Apple, you know, kind of took advantage of, of people's uh, um, uh, privacy when when they shouldn't have. There's there's a uh, there's a lawsuit against them for that. But uh I guess maybe help us understand like like what the what the problem is here, you know, how this um I guess the problem in the market that you know uh, uh Boltiv kind of serves to address. Sure. Yeah, and I think that will what I describe here I think will lend itself to the Apple story too in, in a moment, but 
it comes down to programmatic advertising. So programmatic advertising is an auction called real-time bidding. And that auction takes place in something like 10 to or 20 to 50 milliseconds. And while that's happening, it's all algorithmically based, no human intervention. There are buyers and sellers that are matched up and it's essentially lawless. It's like putting a package in the mail when you are buying an ad and passing through a number of different intermediaries along the way until that, that package is then opened up on a website and served to a consumer. But the handoffs along the way from the middlemen, they're essentially handling something they don't really know what the material is. So as a result of that, there's a need for a sheriff to, to help make sure that bad things aren't happening. And that's how Bolts have started. Our original name is Ad Lightning, and that's still the name of our malvertising, anti-malvertising product, which does address malware issues um, like redirects and um, malicious browser extensions and, and trojans and other things that are delivered through ads. But as we've grown over time, our customers have asked for other solutions. So they've asked for solutions against objectionable ads. We're just exiting the political season and there's quite a bit of extreme content that makes its way into political campaigns, more so in recent years. And that's undesirable by many um, online publishers. So our, our technology can discover malcontent. Um, it can be uh, images that are considered um, unseemly or not safe for work that we can help block as well. But it, this area of what I think the politicians like to call surveillance advertising is really a much bigger issue and a much more timely issue. And um, that that's being driven by this year, really regulations that are being finalized that are coming online um, next year, starting January 1. And I think you did a very good job back in August with Scott Giordano of, of Spirian when you talked about the new data privacy laws. That's an excellent episode. And I think it's still worth going back and listening to because it's there's still a lot of good wisdom in there. But um, we're here, Boltiv is here to help companies because many were scrambling then back in August even more started scrambling after the Sephora um, announcement or Sephora settlement, I should say, and more are scrambling now. But I'll make one more comment on Apple. Apple's done a very savvy thing, which is they've built a very privacy safe um, walled garden around their devices. And what it does is it takes advantage of how the laws are written. So the laws are written really to discourage data sharing between companies, third parties, cross context. Those are some of the terms used. But Apple being as large and pervasive as it is, can do those ad buying and ad serving and targeting all within a single enterprise. So while the exact same thing is happening, it's not leaving the walls and therefore is lawful. Very clever, very savvy, um, privacy um, supportive, but also very lucrative too. Sure. Is that why we're seeing with the American Data Privacy Protection Act proposal, the big tech companies not making more noise about it for the reason you just mentioned? Yeah, it there is a there is an outcome where privacy regulations like the ADPPA make the big tech companies more powerful because they essentially sidestep the provisions that affect the smaller players in the ecosystem that are forced to share in order to be viable advertising channels. Whereas the big players, the big tech um, will win because they can be privacy compliant and they have massive amounts of inventory. When you look at what Google and what Meta and what uh, 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 TikTok has, Amazon has, um, they're in Apple, of course, they're, um, they're the players that will get stronger if 
privacy regulations don't take that into account. Why isn't this why isn't this talked about more? You know, the U.S. definitely falls behind other countries on privacy. Why do you think there is such reluctance to? Uh, well, I think I know the answer. It's one word: consumerism, but um, or uh, capitalism. But but why do you think there's such acceptance on the part of the consumer to accept privacy violations? You know, so uh, just a couple of hours ago, I accidentally clicked on an ad. I I have a hurt finger, and um, my clicking finger is not working very well. And I accidentally clicked on an ad. Within seconds, I received an ad to my email with a promotional discount to a company that I never meant to even interact with, which felt like a huge privacy violation. I was furious. There's nothing I can do about it. Horses out of the barn. I can write to my Congress people. I can do all I want, but I'm not a big voice here. And there aren't a lot of people like me. So why do you think that is? Yeah, I think you said it sort of unfettered capitalism and sort of getting used to a world over time, like the water being turned up, boiling a frog. Um, but it does reach a breaking point. I think if you go back in history, it's, it's very interesting to watch the confluence of two trends. One is the origin of the kind of tracking that you mentioned and being and being profiled and served ads. And the other is the origin of data protection. And when the Internet started, it was a frontier that was lawless. I mean, it was accepted in um, I remember from the beginning of the of the era that uh, that Adrian fondly caused me to remember at stamps.com that it was accepted that that was that much of the Internet was outside the jurisdiction of law. Things just happened. It was a wild west. And so you had these the origin of the cookie, which, you know, if you go back in the beginning of the Internet, people used to browse cars by going to auto pages on Yahoo and MSN and AOL, some of those names and car makers place their ads there. Then one day Google appears and now people are searching for content. And the audience fragments and advertisers then have to work with all these intermediaries to reach that audience that used to be centralized on the on the big portals. And the origin of the cookie was you could know who had visited sites, not at that moment, but who had visited that sites, those sites before. And back to the unfettered capitalism, that's a holy grail. That's massively valuable to be able to know people that are auto intenders because they had visited certain sites in the past 30 days. And. So, and that over time just became more and more like the water you know, being turned up on the stove. It became more and more pervasive. You had interest-based advertising. And then in 2007, which was really iPhone dawn of the multi-device era, you have cross-app advertising, which is like the mobile equivalent of the retargeting that we used to see just on the web. And, and then over time, you had device graphs that could connect your phone, your desktop, even later your connected TV and know that you're the same person and even cross device hits you up with those ads. So that's kind of the progression of, of online tracking. Then at the same time, we had this other thing going on, mostly outside the US, which was around it was sort of the drumbeat of data protection. In, in it began, I think, in, in Europe. Um, Europe has a history, of course, of, of data privacy violations that have had horrendous consequences. But um, UK newspapers were engaged in this hacking scandal um, back in the early 2000s where uh, people's information were published in Rupert Murdoch's newspapers. We didn't start to see this in the US really until Edward Snowden and the leaking of, uh, of NSA classified information. Then we started to wake up, but again, not as far along as the rest of the world. 
And it wasn't until Equifax and Cambridge Analytica and these other things grew that um, the first U.S. privacy law, which was a CCPA out of California, was passed in 2018. But more importantly, you had GDPR in Europe, which was this great collision where GDPR said enough is enough, that uh, the data tracking has gone too far. We need more data protection. And since it's, it's been a whole different world, if you look at the eras of the Internet, eras of the Internet, it's been a different era post-2018. Yeah, so so let's see. Um trying to trying to think of where to pick up here. So you know, going back to kind of the foundation here, you know, I'm, I I want to get an idea for, you know, you're talking about how these ads get auctioned. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's all fully automated. Like I I've got to imagine that different websites or or the mechanism that's used to do the 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 platforms that are used to do the auctioning, the ad tech companies, there's got to be some kind of content or policy. Well, I, I say there's got to be, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know I might be uh, uh, disappointed by your answer here, but um, what, what is the current state of the market? Is it is it uh, still very much Wild West where somebody has like a EULA or something like that says, you know, the ads can't fit into any of these categories? And people just ignore it and all kinds of stuff gets gets blasted out or, you know, wh where is the industry in terms of uh, companies having something like your product or like I would think that the, you know, the ad techs like these auctioning platforms would have this built in. This is a world. This is an ecosystem that resists contracts and it's very much. How how can you get dozens and dozens of intermediaries to work together and solve a very, very difficult problem, which is if I'm an advertiser and I want to advertise on the Internet, where should I go and who should I reach and how often should I run these? It's a very, very hard problem to solve. And so the, the notion of terms of service or EULAs to say, um, let's solve this problem, but please don't send me these kinds of ads and these kinds of ads and those kinds of ads. Th those can be done with direct buys. But with programmatic, there's just not really a control mechanism for that. It's all happening so fast and there's so many buyers and sellers and so much volume going through. So what uh, what you see in the California laws, though, are the, the encouraging of contracts and the notion of defining service providers, contractors and third parties. And those are three types of vendors that have very, very different legal implications in California. But you must have contracts with those three parties in order to do business with them. And that's to solve the data protection problem, not the content problem. The content problem, I believe, would need to be solved similar to like a D digital services act, like in Europe, coming to the U.S., which which would be repealing Section 230, right? In uh, the Section 230 in the Communications Code, basically says as a platform, you're you're hands off with regard to user generated um, abhorrent content. That's not your fault. But that's the, the sort of, again. I'm not a lawyer, so lawyers listening on this uh, on this episode may have more to say. Um, but that that framework, again, it, the, the, the sort of the consumer's willingness uh, up until recently to allow privacy violations and the legal framework of, of competition before consumer protection in, in a lot of the way the laws are written. It means that you're you're in this lawless world, Adrian, and, and EULAs in terms of service will do their best. But um, the technology moves faster than that. Wow. Yeah, and, and mentioning lawyers talking about this, uh, you referenced the episode we had with uh, Scott Giordano. Uh, for folks uh, listening or watching, that is episode 285. If you look for episode 285 or just search 
Scott Giordano's uh, name on YouTube. Uh, you, you'll find that episode where you know he talks about uh, these five new laws going in. And, and the one of those that we're going to touch on today is California's law, because as, as we all know, you know, California tends to be uh, ahead of the curve here. And they're a large enough state with enough people and companies uh, headquartered uh, in, in California that they can have a, a really big impact, uh, almost the same level impact as like a, a federal uh, statute in some cases. But uh, I believe this is called... So when Scott was on, you'll hear him refer to it as CPRA. Uh, but I've come to learn from Dan uh, that what we're talking about today is CCPA, which is like a patch for CPRA because CPRA uh, didn't work. Is that, it's, is that uh, about it's right? Actually, it's close. Yeah, we, we are talking about CCPA and CPRA is actually the patch. But um, oh, oh, I got there, but, but, but there's. It, there's no right answer, right? There's a school of thought that said, let's just call the whole thing CPRA now because that's the new ballot initiative that was passed in California. And then there's another group that's maybe more purist that says, well, no, it's really amending CCPA, so we're going to keep calling it CCPA. But that, but that's the thing, that, and the rulemaking is still ongoing with that. Um, the the law takes effect January 1, and enforcement takes effect July 1. So there's not a whole lot of time for, for companies to get ready. So, so what you mentioned Sephora. So what happened with Sephora here? If enforcement hasn't happened yet, what, what are they getting hit with here and, and why? Yeah. Enforcement of the CPRA takes effect January 1. Enforcement of CCPA has been ongoing for, for years now. Uh, what was different about Sephora was it was the first settlement where a fine was paid. And there were hundreds of letters that the attorney general's office sent out, letters of noncompliance, and companies would make corrections within a 30-day statutory cure period. They had 30 days to fix their act. Almost all companies did that and so avoided more severe consequences. Well, two things. One, Sephora didn't, um, allegedly. And number two, that 30-day cure goes away January 1. So there isn't a warning shot anymore. But but let's talk about what happened with Sephora that, that was claimed. And I'll say that this was in the context uh, soon before the elections, and the attorney general's office is an elected office, and the words around this were very serious by Attorney General Bonta. The gloves are coming off, and they're getting very serious in the attorney general's office of California about companies that are that are skirting the law. But what happened was, it ended up being a, a settlement for 1.2 million for violations of CCPA, and it. It, which makes it the first fine. It's it's not a very large fine in the scheme of things, but recall the first GDPR fine was around $250,000 and it reached a peak of $800 million to, to Amazon last year. But what, what was it? What was at stake here for Sephora was the attorney general alleged that Sephora did not honor opt-outs from a certain form of signal called the global privacy control which is like the latter day version of do not track on your browser. It's a, it's a browser plugin or inherent to certain browsers that tells the world, do not track me. And Sephora, like many companies, in fact, like 90% of companies don't have a way to honor that signal. What else happened was data was shared with third parties through an online um, analytics uh, uh, vendor. And that was not named, but some have suggested it might've been Google analytics. And that, was allowing consumer data to leave um, Sephora and be shared with a third party without Sephora disclosing 
that it was sharing or really selling that data in their privacy policies. Those those were the issues. That's interesting. Like, like did it was it intentional or oops, it leaked? Like, you know, yeah. I hope hopefully you get in trouble either way. Like, uh, again, to reference another story we're going to talk about in the news. You know, there was an attempt to to call uh, some cryptocurrency going missing uh, a hack. You know, where everybody looking at it's like, nah, they're they're just <laughs> they're they're trying to get funds yeah. uh, out it's, of the reach. It's of, not of the it's not a field I have that much experience in, but I would feel like the odds of accidentally sharing that type of data is actually much higher than the odds of like accidentally sending cryptocurrency into uh into the void like i've I've seen it in the past people do end up using something like google analytics in places where they they no one thinks about it it gets inserted and then three years later you've got so much data in there that you didn't even know about so do do you think it's likely that a lot of these are accidental just because people don't really know and then the data piles up and you described it perfectly i couldn't have said it better myself that is exactly what happens that um it's no ill intent I mean, Sephora just wanted to find more customers and they were looking, they were trying to find lookalike audiences. It was not malicious. It's actually good business, but it's still a violation. And it's a mistake that many, many companies, most companies that are marketing today are are making the exact same mistake. So um, it's not ill intent. And what you described, the reason I chuckled is that this is often how it happens. You have a project and someone puts a a pixel or a beacon on a web page and there's no governance around that. And this might have been last summer with an intern. It might have been five years ago, but it's still sitting there. And now the laws have changed. And now you can't do that anymore. So it's with a lot of data privacy, the first thing you've got to do is your data mapping. And people think about databases and where is my data stored and what kind of structured and unstructured data do I have in which database? But then all the while, there's this problem of of, of these pixels and beacons and tags sitting on web pages, which are seemingly, seemingly pretty innocuous. And that's where the leaks of of consumer data are going, and that's where you're getting in trouble. So Sephora, I should have mentioned, is also under a two-year injunction where they have to report back um, all their privacy incidents to California and and um, and how to solve those. But it's it's exactly that. It's often inadvertent. It could have been anybody. It happened to be Sephora, and it happened to be Sephora didn't remedy it in the 30 days that they were asked to. So. Uh- Talk a bit about how how you guys do what you do because I, I I it was not what I was expecting you know I I think it's interesting how how your products work how you find these these kinds of leaks yeah we because of our origin in anti malware we have created and patented a way of looking at bad activity that's different than most and we call it in this case secret shoppers for privacy so we create synthetic users and it's simulated data so whenever something wrongly happens to these there's no laws being broken it's 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 imitation but it allows us to smoke test the internet pipes in a very effective way like a smoke test you would push smoke through a pipe before you would push a flammable gas but that smoke tells you exactly where the leaks are and you know how to repair it so then when the gas goes through you're safe same idea we will uh, apply these personas and they will visit sites, they will go through the customer journey, they will visit things, they will they will browse things, they will put things in their shopping cart, they will opt out of data sharing, some will opt into data sharing, and we record all the forensics of everything that's happening to these synthetic users so that we can know if systems are working properly. And it, it persists over time, so these users will have a lifetime. 
And so days, weeks, even months after they've taken on activities, we can watch, is that data leaking still? Are ads being served that shouldn't be served because the, con the consumer opted out? And, and again, timestamp all of this and have a, a trail of everything that's happening. So it's, it's the sort of thing that you could do with analysts, but it would be extraordinarily expensive and time consuming. And uh, because we can create any number of these personas, they can operate at different speeds, um, we can get results faster. But that's really the notion. Yeah, it's funny. You're talking about the smoke test and using um, uh, made up data, using um, synthetic data. And immediately where my brain went was, uh, you know, maybe that's what Todd Davis, the CEO of LifeLock, should have done <laughs> instead of using his own social security number in all those advertisements back back in the day. I don't know if anybody here remembers that, but. Oh yeah, I, I absolutely do. But I, I thought what you, you were going to bring up is um, this is actually similar to some of the like honeypot techniques, right? Like things like canary tokens and honey yes. users and all of that, but brought to the advertising environment, which, you know, right. it's, it's a more long-term thing, right? Like you can't just do things over a short period of time. You said you 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 watch things over a, over a month, and how much of your engineering is focused on like generating that believable user activity, and then tracking? How do you detect that something is leaked? Do you uh, deal with data brokers and try to see if you can buy these things, or how does that work? Uh, we will observe how the data is leaking because of the marketing that's directed towards the uh, personas. And we will have uh, test and control personas of different stripes. We'll have the opt-in, we'll have the opt-out, and then we have a third control. So we can see for someone who never engaged with a certain brand, what is their ad experience? Because sometimes you'll see ads from companies you've never visited because of, of generalized contextual advertising. But we can statistically determine the likelihood when, when an opt-out consumer sees a certain number of ads in a certain period of time, how likely is it that that data is leaking to them? We can also observe communications from the browser also. So that allows us to see which parties um, are engaged. In, and this is through the benefit of some standards, uh, some internet standards like the TCF, Transparency and Consent Framework, um, and the US Privacy String. Uh, and uh, different strings in Europe. But there are these other standards out there that allow us to kind of more quickly see when consent is dropped. That's awesome. So it's a scientific version of feeling weird about suddenly seeing a bunch of ads for shoes when you were just doing something on a website, but then you, you never know, is that a coincidence? But if you do it at scale and often enough, you can prove that it is not a, a coincidence. It's fascinating. Yeah. And at least it calls to suspicion. And because we can see the nodes where it happened, you can investigate and find where sometimes, you know, we have examples of of patches that were put and deployed out on different um, Internet intermediaries. And those patches undid the privacy compliance with un unknowingly because it wasn't part of the regression testing. Those things kinds of those kinds of things happen all the time. Again, innocuous, um, but you, you wouldn't see it unless you had the ability at scale to see lots of user experiences. And so what where do you run uh, the the infrastructure for that? Do, I, I guess in some cases, do you need to be coming out from like IP addresses that are realistic? Do you have to use like residential yeah. IPs, yeah, or are you doing cool. all this from a cloud? Or 
It's both. Yeah, we do cloud, residential, different situations for different needs. But you're right, because the, the, the theme is you have to look and act as much as a real consumer would and uh, anything short of that. And you can be blocked uh, and the, the interactions won't happen and you won't get a read on what's really going on. So so let me get this right. Like, because the, the ad tech companies aren't blocking malicious stuff, you you have to be like like there's it sounds almost like they're spending more time on blocking you from blocking the bad stuff than actually blocking the bad stuff in the first place, which is what they should have been doing in the first place. Yeah, I think it's if you're running a retail business and you have had price scrapers hitting your site you know, thousands and thousands of times a day, that's maybe your first pain before you think about privacy is what about my own data as a business? I don't want that going out there so competitors can price can undercut my prices um, and, and the price spots that are out there. So, so the business need steered companies towards let's, let's avoid those scrapers from hitting our sites. Let's optimize for that. Now privacy comes along and it's less dollars and cents, although we see ROI every day on this problem. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit more nuanced. What's very interesting about privacy and consent is it's not just a compliance problem. It's really a targeting problem. And what we discover with our systems when there are errors like this, what we call dark signals, that is when an opt-out uh, consumer actually looks like they've opted in, or when an opt-in consumer looks like they've actually opted out, which is actually a more frequent problem, that's not just a compliance issue. That's that's a revenue issue. Opt-in consumers who raise raise their hands and say, go ahead and target me. Those are your most lucrative prospects. And when you can't see who they are because of the technical handoffs and errors and disruptions that we see all the time, then as a publisher, you're leaving revenue on the table. As an advertiser, you're missing your most responsive audience. So I go back and, and this problem that we're solving, we, it, it gets wrapped up in privacy, but it's really at its core. It, it's, a, it's a targeting blindness that leads to this in the first place. Right. Uh, any other questions, Katie? I just had one. It's a little tangential, but in terms of privacy and privacy management, there are some companies who are getting pretty serious about it. And with some of the laws that are in place, some of the ones that will hopefully be coming up, it necessitates that companies have processes and tools to be able to to know where all of their data related to a data subject are. And that's super problematic. So how do you work or do you work now? Or what are your plans to work with companies like, you know, the data mapping, data identification, like the one trusts of the world, if you're familiar with them, you know, the, the companies that can go out and find, you know, if I'm Katie Teitler and I work with company A and company A has 762 repositories with my data in it, they don't know where all of that data is and it would take weeks or even months to find it. So how do you work with those companies or, or, or what, what is your stance on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a different thing than we do. So we partner with companies that are really good at data mapping, really good at inventorying the data, really good at mapping and tracking data flows and then governing those data flows. There's a lot of great technology that's been built. OneTrust is one, but there's many others um, that uh, are very competitive and have innovations that OneTrust doesn't have. And those are our, our potential partners. They figure out the data sprawl problem and we figure out the diagnosis and the validation. 
So the diagnosis being let's let's run our scans um, and let's see where the synthetic um, personas are finding problems and pinpoint where those are. Then yeah. these other technologies that you're describing, let's let's remedy those and then let's validate everything's been fixed by running it again. The thing to remember though is vendors are changing all the time and errors are being introduced sometimes on a day-to-day basis. So it's not enough to audit once a year. That will get you in trouble with the regulators. The auditing really needs to be ongoing, but that's our, you know, that's our role more the monitoring and auditing, which is a naturally like you don't want the fox guarding the hen house. It's it's natural to have a, a, diff, a different company do uh, the discovery and the auditing than it is to have the uh, than the company that's actually performing the service. Um, so it's kind of a natural break in there and a good partnership. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. You know, a few years ago I learned about them and I was a big, big fan of that technology. So it's great that you have that natural partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Dan, what, what do companies need to do to prepare? Well, you know, obviously with Sephora, they're, they're um, past the deadline for, for some of the stuff that they need to do. Um, you know, but I, I guess, you know, two part question, where do you see the most gaps in, in what companies haven't done yet? You know, it sounds like that, uh, um, you know, some of the, the data requests, some of the, uh, you know, the, the right to be forgotten type type stuff, you know, having these processes and procedures in place might be part of it. Um, and, and what should companies be doing? Like, I, I assume there's services, there's uh, um, companies you can hire to come in and do like a gap analysis on what you need to do to comply with this stuff. Um, but, but what should companies be doing between now and, and January 1st or or just now? Yeah, I think it starts something. I mean, if you if you look back and may, rewind the clock to May of 2018 when GDPR took effect, European companies weren't fully ready for that, and that's okay. The regulators didn't expect perfection, but they expected good faith efforts and a start. I don't think we're at a point where we can run a report card on most companies and see how mature they are because so few companies have 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 buttoned up the way they need to, and that's okay. There's there's going to be some forgiveness, but. Um, number one, you you have to assign a, a leader for your data privacy program in one way or another. In, under GDPR, you need to have a data protection officer. That's not yeah, required DPO. under California. Yeah, right. Exactly. Not required under the national law um, uh, that uh, the ADPPA, but it's a good idea. And then engaging in the data mapping, right? Um, there's a good NIST privacy framework around how to do data mapping through inventory and data flow. Lots of companies that can do that. Um that's a next step. Then I would say implementing uh, systems to prevent what we call dark signals and data skimmers. So, so dark signals are when these, these transmissions of consent and data between handoffs between vendors break, are mistranslated and data leaks out. Th- those dark signals um, are a, a, a menace. The second thing is data skimmers. Uh, we didn't get much of a chance to talk about this, but the problem with this data leakage is not it's not just that the big technology companies are going to see it. There's actually some bad actors lurking in there. We see malware distributors in the bid stream that are profiling consumers and taking that consumer data. We have even seen um, uh, companies that are sanctioned companies in unfriendly foreign countries that are getting U.S. consumer data because this is a really massive ecosystem. And you're not talking just about third parties, but fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh parties the vendors of vendors of vendors that are out there. So identifying who those data skimmers are 
is a very, very important step because that's where it becomes dangerous. So I would think the first thing is to do something, assign someone, begin the data mapping process, and then where Boltiv comes in are, are these systems for the, the transmissions between vendors to make sure that's operating properly and that there are no holes um, or data leakage there. Guillaume and has I a had perfect the... wrap question for you. Yeah, go ahead, yeah, Just a quick question. Do you run an ad blocker? And if so, which one is your favorite? Uh, we don't. Um, uh, we, we partner with ad blockers. Um, there, uh, or I should say, we 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 are open to partnering with with ad blockers because that ad blockers can do a good thing for, for consumers, but they can do a bad thing for publishers. Uh, a lot of the advertising we're describing here is what funds the open web, and without the advertising and even some of the overreach and infractions that we're talking about, without this money being available and being funded by advertisers, many of the websites we love would disappear right. behind paywalls. Right. Yeah. So uh, ad blockers have a role and blocker block ad blocker blockers have a role. Um, they're all trying to do the right thing in different ways. But I guess I would I would leave that one point is that if we go too far, if the pendulum swings too far, we're going to end up in a world like where the Internet began, which is you have CompuServe and AOL and these these walled gardens that control everything because there's not enough money for the smaller players to survive because the ad dollars disappear due to privacy um, ex excessiveness. Yeah, too how much regulation you, as well. Yeah. How do you yeah. personally handle the, you know, that that dilemma? You know, do you do you, so you don't use blockers uh, for anything or anything like Brave? Um, I do. You know, I do think that there's a there's room for you know privacy safe browsers like Brave, Ghost Redawn, Firefox is good at this. Uh, if you're not on any of those, deleting your unused browser extensions, um, I think is a good idea. It's using search engines like DuckDuckGo that don't track you, using all the um, switching on all of the protections on your your mobile device, uh, iOS turning off app tracking and so forth, using anonymized email. You can go on and on and on. I will tell you personally, I don't turn too much of it off because I'm curious what kind of targeted advertising I'm going to get. I, I kind of sure. need to know that. So I'm, right, right. I'm out there like the average consumer. And no, that's a really good answer. And to be honest. Uh, I, I don't know how they do things different, but Facebook and Instagram, so Facebook's products, have the best targeted ads. Like they, they really do know me, and they pitch me stuff. And you know, like, like I'll give them, I'll publicly give them kudos. Like I've bought several products. Uh, in, in fact, those are the only products I can think of that where I've actually bought stuff from ads. You know, directly from ads. I'm, most of the other ones that I interact with get it wrong. Uh, you know, I think we talked about this in a prep call, like I'll often get ads for things that I just bought, you know, and, and it's the kind of thing where you're only going to buy, you know, one, at least for a given amount of time, you know, like, like an appliance or a car or something like that. You like, don't collect battery chargers. Right. <laughs> like, like you're wasting all your money. I, I mean, yes, I looked at this thing. But, you know, there should be some way for the adver advertiser to know that I pulled the trigger on it and I actually bought it. So there's no sense in advertising to me what I just got. <laughs> it, just, it, it kills me. It kills me. It just, it just seems. When, and, and to your point, I do like to see that. I like to see, OK, you know, ad tech for, for all the AI and ML and, and talk that they have. It's still pretty. It looks pretty dumb. You know, it's, it's just kind of shotgun blasted. 
right? It is. It is. Yeah, it is. It is entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today. Uh, great, great conversation. I loved it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Adrian. And, and if you want to find out more about us, we're at Boltive.com. Oh, yeah. And I should mention in the show notes, uh, you generously provided a bunch of links if people want to read more about this, uh, whether you want to read about the legal side, the privacy laws, uh, or you know more about uh, data leakage and things like that. A uh, lot of great, um, uh, one from Consumer Reports, a lot of great uh, resources here in the show notes. Yeah. And, and if you want to talk shop, anybody, uh, I love to geek out on this stuff. Hit me up on LinkedIn also. Um, there is a, a thriving uh, privacy community on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. And uh, we'll be back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. 